There we are. I have power. Um, for there a little bit, I was wondering because uh, my sleep patterns have been completely off. Um, we just got back from from Israel last week, and everybody's been asking uh, to see pictures and hear stories. Uh, um, it was awesome, fantastic. Uh, we traveled last weekend, took about 27 hours to get back, and so every day this week I was up at 5 o'clock, just the whole time change is just really plays havoc on your body. But there was so much that we experienced, so much that we saw. Um, we'll try to slip in a bunch of those um, um, stories and pictures and stuff. Um, probably my favorite moment was at the Western Wall, or what you may know as the Wailing Wall. Um, there's a picture up here of when we were, um, there's our, three of our campus pastors, so Brent and Ross, and I'm obviously the tall guy in the middle. Um, this is the Western Wall, which is the closest that um, the Jewish people can get to where the temple was, the Holy of Holies, which is why it's such a sacred place. And you've probably seen it on, on, on TV or in the news. Uh, when we were there, we were actually supposed to go on a Tuesday, and uh, Vice President Pence was there. there. All the world leaders were there because of the 75th anniversary of the closing of Auschwitz was celebrated while we were there. So it was high, high security um, in um, Jerusalem while we were there. And so the day that we were actually supposed to go there, we'd gone all the way to the check-in, and they had closed it because Mike Pence was there at the, the Western Wall, and so we couldn't get in, and, and so we had to come back a, another day. But um, I had come with a bunch of different prayers, a lot of the different prayer requests that you guys have, and, and um, just praying for you, and, and I was inserting these little prayer requests on the wall. The next um, picture is my hand, um, just putting those up on the wall. If you want, they'll say, if you want to go ahead and go to the next picture. There's my hand. Um, I'm just kind of sticking in. There's prayer. All these prayers are just put into the stones of, of the wall there. And, and I was praying for all, all of you um, there. It was just a really significant moment. Um, and like I said, there's a lot more things that I'll talk about in the weeks to come. But speaking of prayer, that's what we've been doing. We've been doing a series around here um, called How to Pray, a simple guide for all of us normal people. And my hope and my prayers as we've been going through the series that it, God's using it to, to reinvigorate and to restore and, and to renew and redefine your life and your relationship with God. And so in the series, what we've been doing is uh, we've been kind of digging deeper in, into this topic of prayer by looking at what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so if you want to look with me, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says, One day it happened that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. So again, I want you to think about this because the disciples have been following Jesus now for quite a period of time and, and had been asking and, and seeing what he's been doing, watching him do all these miracles, listening to him teach and, and listening and watching his prayer life. And they realized there was something different about his prayer life. And so they were asking him, well, oh, teach us how to do this. Teach us what's involved with all of this. And, and Jesus's response is you see it actually a couple different places in the gospel. You see it in the book of Matthew, um, and it's included as part of the longest sermon that he ever preached. Um, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, um, are, well, a lot of times we refer it to um, the, on the Mount of Beatitudes, or the Sermon on the Mount. We were there just a week ago. This is a picture of that on um, the Mount of Beatitudes. That's the, the Sea of Galilee is right there. It's when you think of Mount, it's not, you don't think, you can't think mountains. It's more like the hill country around here. We were there when everything was green. There's a, it only really rains in January, February, if at all. And so we actually saw a lot of greenery there, but no 
normally it's just rock. It, I mean, there, there are more rocks. You think you have rocks in, in your yard. There were more rocks than I have ever seen in my life all over the place. But this is the Mount of Beatitudes. And from this mount, if you go to the next um, picture, we were standing right there looking down off the mount. And, and so we, were, we read through. This is our group. Um, so the executive pastors, we were reading Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is that, that sermon, the longest sermon that Jesus preached to that large gathering right there on the Mount of Beatitudes. And so it's from this mount that, that Jesus gives us what we now call the Lord's Prayer. It's up here on the screen. Can we all say it here together? Say this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts, daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think a lot of times, and I've been saying this over this series, I think a lot of times we kind of take on this religious hat that these are kind of the exact words that we are to pray. That that was what Jesus' point, where you get, these are, this is the script, pray the script and everything will be okay. I want to challenge us, this is what we talk about in the series, is that this is, I think Jesus gave this more as a map to show us the way of how we are to, to pray. And I think it can be broken down into these four big large sections um, in this rhythm that we've been talking about, the P-R-A-Y. Um, P stands for pause, R stands for rejoice, A stands for ask, and Y stands for yield. These are the four sections that you can kind of break down what we call the Lord's Prayer. We've, been, we've gone through pause and rejoice and ask. Today, I want to start looking at the fourth idea of what it means to yield. And it starts with this phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, this by far is the most challenging part of the Lord's Prayer. Stanley Hauervoss, in his book, Lord Teach Us, the Lord's Prayer in the Christian Life, he said it this way. He said, right here is where the Lord's Prayer is the most difficult to pray. Perhaps that's why this is the longest and most involved petition of the Lord's Prayer. And so think about this, because at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, it's filled with things that I think we all want. Right? Things that we can kind of get excited about. I mean, who wouldn't want a loving Father in heaven? Who wouldn't want the kingdom of God to come? Who wouldn't want a nice, fresh loaf of daily bread? God meeting our daily needs and things that we encounter. But then we get to this section, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This section kind of sneaks up on us and hits us right where it hurts. First, the the jab in the gut, forgive us our debts. Or as another translation says, forgive us our sins. And then this kind of right hook, as we forgive our debtors, or as another translation says, as we forgive those who sin against us. There's no, there's no excuses. There's no if, and, or buts here. There's, there's, we're kind of caught red-handed with this idea that we have sinned, that we have, we have missed the mark, that our lives aren't perfect, that, that as much as we want to try to set ourselves up for everybody else to think we're okay, the reality is that we're just not okay. And this is the only line in the Lord's Prayer that carries this big caveat attached to it, and that is, if we won't forgive we won't be forgiven. 
He goes on and says it later in Matthew chapter 5, after the Lord's Prayer, he says it very specifically that way. If we won't forgive, we won't be forgiven. And immediately, I think so many of us, we start thinking, but that's not fair. I mean, he is the one who started it. She's the blame. I'm the victim here. We begin to have all of these sorts of justifications and excuses. But the reality is that pointing fingers and closed fists close our hands to the grace of God. Look at this in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As a few, it says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, we were right there. Capernaum's right there on the Sea of Galilee. Um, and right there, the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's really not that long of a distance where he was about almost about a 10-mile um, kind of distance. And this is where Jesus spent 90% of his time performing 27 out of the 34 or the 37 miracles, depending on how you count them, were done right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And so this is where he is. He's entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now think about this, because I think this is kind of an interesting little kind of side note of all this that's going on here. Because the first thing that Jesus does with this paralyzed man is he says that his sins are forgiven. He doesn't address what's going on in his body. Everybody's bringing him there because, you know, his friends are bringing him there because he's paralyzed. He needs to be healed. But the first thing that Jesus does is that he forgives his sins. Why? Verse 10 says, Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's such an interesting priority. Because I think for every one of us, if we would have been in that situation, the first thing we would have done, if we could do it, would be to heal the paralyzed man's body. That's what our focus would have been. But Jesus was illustrating this really important point for all of us to understand, and that is our greatest need, our greatest need, which, by the way, is not our physical health, it's not what's going on with our bodies or our relationships. Our greatest need is God's greatest gift. They are the same thing, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. He illustrates this very powerfully here in this situation. And to receive it, to receive forgiveness, we only need to ask for it. And then, he says, to pass it on. But to ask for it, we first have to admit that we actually need it. I think instinctively, I think all of us would kind of have this, this reaction of passing the buck. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. Anything, anyone is to blame, but not me. I didn't do it. It's not, it's not my fault. We all want to kind of pass the buck, especially in life. And so I think this is the hardest line in the Lord's Prayer, but it's also by far the most outrageous. It's the most audacious part of this prayer because there's no real please, God, would you please, 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 would you do this? There's not even really, I'm sorry, God, attached to any of this. It's just this audacious request that kind of sounds a bit demanding. Forgive us our sins, right? It just sounds a little bit audacious, a little bit demanding here. In, in Matthew's gospel, it's, it's translated as forgive our debts, which is one of the reasons why we quote it that way. Debts, trespasses, sins are a lot of times used interchangeably. But in Matthew's gospel, the word is debts. And that word debt in the original Greek language that this was written in is the word ophelioma. 
And that word ophelioma, interestingly enough, it's not a religious term. It's actually a commercial term. And it denotes something that's owed, something that is due, something that is a duty or an obligation to give or to pay. These debts that we owe. Then we attach the word forgive, which is actually also a commercial term as well. And it literally means to wipe the slate clean. And so think about this. Kind of just put it in, in your own in your own world here. So try to do that with your banker or maybe your mortgage lender or your, your credit card provider. And you write them a little note and say, Dear sirs, my wife and I have appeared to have borrowed way too much money that we can afford to pay. And so I'm writing, therefore, to ask that you do erase from your hard drive all record of everything that we owe. Forgive us our debts. Let's call it quits. Yours faithfully, Russ. It's preposterous to think that we could actually do such a thing here. It's naive, not the way the world works at all. Hmm. Not the way the world works at all, which is the point. Look at this in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the young, younger son got, it, got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now think about what's going on here. Because here the prodigal son he finally comes to his senses, the scripture says. He was like he wakes up and realizes just what's going on in his life. And he comes stumbling back home, stinking, filled with mixed emotions and motives. And a, this kind of flimsy apology that's kind of stuck in his back pocket that he's going to give to his dad to try to convince him to bring him back in the fold, at least as a servant. But notice that before the prodigal son could fully deliver this flimsy apology that he had created... He was hugged by his father and given the family checkbook and welcomed home. This is really important, I think, for everyone else to understand because it wasn't the speech. 
It wasn't all these things that he felt like he needed to say to somehow convince his dad that he was, he was apologetic and that he had messed up. It wasn't about the speech. It was never about the speech. It was only that he had come home. Listen, everybody. It doesn't matter what you've said or done. It doesn't matter what you've thought about saying or doing. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you've been with. There's more grace in God than sin in you. That is the heart of God. This is what Jesus was trying to get us to understand. And so you can't be too bad. You can't be too broken. You can't be too boring for God's unconditional sin. Only too proud to acknowledge how desperately you need it. And that becomes the whole point here. God is waiting for us to come back. God's right there. And it's not about our speech. It's not about our language. It's about coming home. How many of you remember who Chuck Colson was? And if you remember, come on, those of you who are old enough history lessons, listen to this. Chuck Colson was a familiar face to many Americans during the Watergate trials of the 1970s. As one of President Nixon's closest confidants, Colson went to great lengths to advance himself beyond his peers. He was the architect of Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign, a relentless fighter who earned a reputation as the White House hatchet man. Time called him tough, wily, nasty, and tenaciously loyal to Richard Nixon. But when a cloud of scandal settled over the presidency, Colson's brilliant career fell to earth. He was the subject of a criminal investigation and eventually pleaded guilty to a charge that landed him in prison for seven months. But Colson's instinct was to fight. But one night at the house of a friend who had recently come to Jesus, Colson's pride began to break. As he drove away, his emotions poured out. Suddenly I felt naked and unclean. My bravado, my defenses gone. I was exposed, unprotected. The tears were flowing uncontrollably, he wrote later. I remember hoping that Tom and Gert wouldn't hear my sobbing. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about my machismo, about pretenses, about fears, and about being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. Ask, and you will receive. Take one step towards the Father, and he comes running towards you. Sputter that unconvincing apology, and God comes and hugs the stuffing out of you. Pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us, and he'll do it. He'll forgive you just like that. He'll wipe your slate clean. First John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, have any of you ever heard of what's called the prayer of examine? Let me just see anybody's hands. It's actually something that was developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola back in the 1500s. So I'm not surprised that most of you haven't heard what that is. But it was part of his work on, on spiritual exercise. And it's a prayer that's often used kind of at the end of the day in reflection of that day. But the reality can be used any time. And the big idea of the prayer of examine is that it's a way of reviewing your day with God. 
This discipline of, of bringing your day, what's happened in your day, bring it before the Lord with the intent of examining your own personal need for forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and recommitment. And there's kind of four parts, four major parts to this prayer of examine. I want to kind of walk you through it just a little bit because I think it's just a great little discipline to add into our spiritual lives. The first part is replay. Replay. So in other words... Yeah, you kind of think back through your day and kind of play it back like a movie, thinking of the major and the minor things that happened throughout your day, playing it through your head and noticing the times where the things that made you happy, the things that made you sad, the things that made you upset, the things that made you angry, the things that made you, made you anxious. And as you're playing this through your mind and replaying the events of your day, what you're doing is also asking God, where were you in this moment? Help me see where you were when I was in this conversation, when I was in this situation, so that you have this awareness of God being with you through the day. So the first part is this replay. The second part is rejoice. In other words, it's it's taking the intentional time to thank God for the specific things that occurred in this, this last 12, 18 hours of your day. And the things that are obvious, but also the things that maybe are not so obvious. It's, and a lot of times it's being thankful for being healthy, uh, you know, having, a, uh, having food to eat and a, place to ha- a, place, a warm place to stay. And um, being able to live in the beautiful hill, hill country here in Texas. Just, just taking these moments to be grateful. To have that kind of pause moments in, of reflecting from your day. All these times where you can relish and savor these moments of just God's blessing in your life and being, great, being grateful for it. And then number three, the next part of this prayer of exam is kind of this idea of repenting. Repent. In other words, saying I'm sorry to God for those moments that come to your mind. As you're replaying what happened in the course of your day, as those things are going through your, your mind... Where, and the things that come to mind where you realize that you were less than, where you missed the mark, or what Scripture describes as sin. Um, for example, as you examine your day, maybe you realize that, that you were getting involved in gossip at your workplace, or maybe you recall an instance where you reacted in a tone that was aggressive, or um, you remember a situation where you lacked the compassion in a situation, or where you just kind of turned a blind eye and ignored a need that was there. And as you're looking back, you're saying, boy, wow, I was just so driven. I, I just I didn't stop and, and do something in that situation. Not responding to the nudge of the Holy Spirit. As you reflect, you, you realize you, these opportunities that you missed. And so in other words, taking the time to examine your day and to be able to say, I'm sorry, God. To be able to repent for those areas that, that you missed it. And the big idea here in this, this, this whole, this whole um, kind of section of the prayer examine is that you probably take a a bath or a shower regularly to deal with the dirt and the stink on your body, right? Come on, turn your neighbor's smell. See, do they do do that here this morning? Most of us, okay, most of us, we have a regular habit of bathing or showering to, to remove the dirt and the stink from our body. Well, in the same way, we're invited by God to come to him regularly, praying in the words of Psalms 51, verse 7. Cleanse me and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Listen, everybody. Without this discipline of repenting, let me suggest to you that you'll start stinking. 
There'll be aspects of your life that will start, start smelling. Behaviors at one time that were once shameful and shocking will gradually become tolerated and accommodated and eventually normalized as your conscience becomes numbed. But by confessing our sins regularly, as you re-examine your day and, we conf- and you confess your sins regularly, there's times that you miss the mark, then your life keeps this sweet-smelling savor to you. And it just it adds this cleanliness to your soul and to your mind and to your spirit, which allows us to stay healthy and holy and a, a little bit more like Jesus every single day. That's this idea of repenting. And then the fourth kind of section of this prayer of examine is this idea of reboot. Reboot. In other words, today is gone and I'm looking forward to tomorrow. It's a new day. You know, his mercies are new every morning. And so this decision that tomorrow I'm going to bring Jesus in to my relationships, into my workplace, into my conversations, and asking for the grace to see his presence more vividly in all the things that are going to happen in your next day. And so these, these four sections, replay, rejoice, repent, and reboot, this kind of this, this pattern of being, bringing that into our, our normal day life. Now here's another one. Do any of you remember who Ruby Bridges is? Another history thing for you. You'll for sure know her story. Listen to this. At the age of six, Ruby Bridges was volunteered by her mother to become the first African-American girl to attend an all-white elementary school in New Orleans. Each day, she had to be escorted to and from the school by up to 25 federal marshals to protect her from the crowd of angry protesters at the school gates. One woman would regularly scream death threats at Ruby. Another protester held up a black doll in a coffin. Every parent pulled their child out of that school. Having braved the crowd's hatred, Ruby would sit all alone in an empty classroom. She was taught by Barbara Henry, the only teacher willing to offer Ruby an education. In her breaks, Ruby remembers wandering around the school looking for all the other children. Images of this tiny little girl being guarded by these federal marshals polarized our nation. Norman Rockwell depicted the scene in this now famous painting called The Problem We All Live With. Watching this tragedy unfold, child psychologist Robert Coles offered Ruby counseling. Once a week, he sat in the humble home that Ruby shared with four siblings and her parents who could neither read nor write. You looked like you were talking to the people in the street on the way into school yesterday, he said on one occasion. Did you finally get angry with them, Ruby? Were you telling them to leave you alone? No, doctor, replied Ruby politely. I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. Well, who were you talking to? The little girl stared at him and said, I was talking to God. I was praying to God for the people, people in the street. You, you were praying for them? But Ruby, why were you praying for them? Her eyes widened. Well, don't you think they need praying for? <laughs> Roberts Coles was lost for words. Regaining his composure, he whispered, What do you say when you pray for them, Ruby? Oh, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people, because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they are doing. And I think this is what Jesus was talking about, that this call to forgive those who have sinned against us. 
And when we do that, the reverberations that happens not only affects you, but those around you and can affect generations of hatred. And generations of hatred can actually be broken because even one little girl, one little girl's prayer of forgiveness. And it's interesting that this is something that Jesus told us not just to do, but he modeled it for us all the way to the cross. Luke 23, verse 33, when they came to the place called the school, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He taught his disciples, right? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Then he modeled it himself. This is what Jesus did. It's really what Ruby did as well. When I think about our world today, it's, it's so bitterly divided between left and right, black and white, rich and poor, east and west, liberal and conservative, men and women. There's all these divisions everywhere. Families are breaking apart. Societies are, are fragmenting. Their international alliances are ending politics are polarizing tribalism and nationalism and protectionism are proliferating in our culture. This is the world that we live in. For all of you parents, this is the world that you're raising your kids in. But I want you to think about this because the reality is that that's exactly how the world was 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it was the same way 60 years ago when Ruby sat in that, being escorted into that classroom and and prayed, please, God, try to forgive these people because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they are doing. I just think both Jesus and Ruby Bridgers, they ministered forgiveness in situations that were socially extreme. And their examples there are undeniably extraordinary. But the reality for every single one of us is that we can follow the same example in less dramatic ways. Because whenever you are offended or hurt, you can choose to, be, to forgive. We can remain silent on social media when our views are being attacked. We can deny ourselves the sugary sympathy of being victim, vic- victimized and, and victimhood. And we can love and pray for those who would otherwise be our enemies. And Jesus said that as we do this, when we, when we take that sin, we stop pointing our fingers, when we, when we unclench our fists and we open our hands, then the, the Father's grace gets poured into our lives and it comes into us and then spreads to those who are around us. On July 15th, 2001, Ruby Bridges was invited um, to the White House by President Obama, if you remember this, to see the famous Norman Rockwell painting that was there on temporary display. And it was such a, a profound picture of Ruby Bridges and, and President Obama standing looking at that, at that painting, the first African-American girl to attend Louisiana's William Francis Elementary School and the first African-American to become the President of the United States. And there in that moment, eventually President Obama t- um, turned to Ruby Bridges and said this, if it, if it hadn't been for you, I might not be here. And we wouldn't be looking at this together. Isn't that a profound, a profound thing, a profound sense of what, what, what can happen? I just think Ruby Bridges reminds us that our choice to forgive can literally change the world. 
It can change the world that we live in. It can break these cycles of bitterness and heal our divisions and multiply fractals of grace, not just in our, our life, but in the lives of those who are around us. And really the reality is, without forgiveness, our prayers, they're, they're just dead religion. Forgiveness is what makes it alive. It, it puts us right in the middle of God doing things in our culture and the relationships around us. Because when we forgive those who have hurt us, the Father's name is hallowed. When we forgive those who have hurt us, his kingdom comes. And when we forgive those who have hurt us, we are, ourselves are forgiven. I want to end here today with one more parable that Jesus gave us. It's here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. It says, the lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated like this. There once was a king who had servants who had borrowed money from the royal treasury. He decided to settle accounts with each of them. As he began the process, it came to his attention that one of his servants owed him one billion dollars. So he summoned the servant before him and said to him, pay me what you owe me. When his servant was unable to pay, repay his debt, the king ordered that he be sold as a slave along with his wife and children and every possession they owned as a payment toward his debt. The servant threw himself face down at his master's feet and begged for mercy. Please be patient with me. Just give me more time and I'll repay you all that I owe. Upon hearing his pleas, the king had compassion on his servant and released him and forgave his entire debt. No sooner had the servant left when he met one of his fellow servants who owed him $20,000. He seized him by the throat and began to choke him, saying, You'd better pay me right now everything you owe me. His fellow servant threw himself face down at his feet and begged, Please be patient with me. If you'll just give me time, I will repay you all that is owed. But the one who had had his debt forgiven stubbornly refused to forgive what was owed him. He had... He, um, he had his fellow servant thrown into prison and demanded he remain there until he repaid the debt in full. When his associates saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to the king and told him the whole story. The king said to him, you scoundrel, is this the way you respond to my mercy? Because you begged me, I forgave you the massive debt that you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to your fellow servants that I showed you? In a fury of anger, the king turned him over to the prison guards to be tortured until all his debt was repaid. In the same way, my heavenly Father will deal with any of you if you do not release forgiveness from your heart toward your fellow believers. Yeah. I told you, this is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus says, as we forgive... We are, to, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. So I think maybe the question actually starts there. The reality is I think all of us have been hurt and offended and used and misused by people in our life. And there's these wounds that happen in us. And so it's so hard to forgive. And I think a lot of times it has to come back to this. Where has God forgiven you? And we have to be reminded, just like that servant in this parable, of how much God has forgiven our debts. How much he has forgiven your debts. Because it's from that place of your debts being canceled that you then can cancel the debts of those who owe you. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes here. Because I want you to just have this moment here with the Lord. And maybe he's already been kind of tugging at your heart and... You've already been feeling that tug here just a little bit. Because the reality is there's probably people in your life who have hurt you deeply. And so this idea 
of forgiving them may just be extremely painful for you. But until you choose to forgive them, they will still have a hold on your heart. It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. But here's the thing I think we all have to remember. And that is forgiving is not naive. Forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not saying that what the other person did is okay in any sort of way. Forgiving doesn't mean leaving yourself exposed to future attack. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiving may truly involve talking with another friend. It may be involved getting counseling. It may even be, mean going to the police. But forgiveness is the choice to love and to let go, not to hate and not to hold on to. Forgiving, it, it tends to be a process, not just a one-time thing where we choose to forgive again and again and again as we're getting that, that root of junk out of our heart that others have placed in there, but what they've said and what they've done. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, we're not just to forgive seven times, but 70 times seven. And so this idea that we just got to keep forgiving, releasing and letting go, releasing and letting go, no longer holding it against them. And so like I said, maybe for you today, where it has to begin is, is just simply remembering all the times when Jesus has forgiven you. But that's, maybe that's where it starts. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like you have the courage yet to forgive, to release those who have hurt you. And, but as you remember how God has released you as, as he has forgiven you, I think something happens. I think something begins to happen that we realize how greatly we have been forgiven. And so then in turn, we can release and cancel the debts of those who owe us. And maybe you actually need to kind of make, make a list and start reminding yourself of all the things that God has forgiven you of. And so Father, I pray for every one of us here. Lord, you know you know the impact. That others' actions and words could have in our heart. You experienced it personally. But yet, you gave us this incredible gift, which is what we all need. And that is. This gift of forgiveness. That you forgive us so that we then in turn can forgive others. And so, Father, we just start with a decision today. We make the choice to forgive, to release, to let go. We make the choice to love and not to hate to let go, not to hold on to. We make that choice right here, right now. That we could then receive your embrace.
Father, I pray that every person here would just run to you in this moment. It's not about the speech. It's not about the apology. It's about coming home. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here. That we would wake up and come to our senses and come home. So that we can experience your embrace. And the healing that that does as we let go and release the others in our life who caused hurt and pain.